The estate is released every Wednesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV, Sonoro, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on The Estate. He had eight gunshot wounds. He had eight gunshot wounds, right. You're able to talk. As long as you can talk, you can say stuff until you die. It's really quite amazing considering the lethality of several of the bullet wounds that he sustained. Who was the actual killer? And when I say, I don't know. It's a hot summer day. I'm about 12 years old. My dad is leaning over a clunk of metal out in the yard. Sweat is rolling down his forehead as he works the screws. He looks like a mad scientist trying to bring Frankenstein to life. This latest invention was the one that was going to make us all rich. Because my dad was a genius and had discovered exactly what people in California need. A wood-burning stove. He took out a second mortgage on the house to try and manufacture it. He even flew to China to find a supplier for the parts. Something I'll never forget because he left during the peak of my mom's chemo treatments. He spent years of his life trying to make it work, but it ended up going nowhere. Instead of fortune, we were stuck with cast iron prototypes littering our side yard like a minefield. Dad was always looking for a way to strike it rich, often at the expense of my family. When the wood-burning stove went nowhere, he came up with a new scheme. To develop a piece of land, borrowing against my mom's pension to make it happen. That plan failed too, and we ended up losing our house. So when police said my dad killed a guy for a million-dollar life insurance policy, I thought, that tracks. This is his greatest failed scheme yet. From Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV, I'm Alex Estrada, and this is The Estate. My journey to find the truth about my father and if he was involved in a 1973 murder. Within days of Tony Virgilio's murder, police established a theory and a motive. My dad and his best friend Calvin hired someone to kill Tony. And they did it for money. With Tony dead, they had a chance to collect on what today would be a million-dollar life insurance payout. And the local newspaper took that theory and ran with it. Stockton Record, January 8, 1974. Calvin Jones and Rosalio Estrada were partners with Virgilio in the Port City Construction. Four. 
The theory that Virgilio may have been set up for murder based on his own deathbed statement was revealed. According to wife Carolyn Virgilio, he had an appointment with attorney Joseph Michael and a former partner, Calvin Jones. We have a sizable collection of the news reports about this murder. Some come from the Stockton Record articles on microfiche from the local library, but most come from newspaper clippings that Calvin's own sisters have preserved for more than 50 years. I remember the first time going through them. I was at Calvin's home, and he started to lay out the articles. There were so many that we ran out of space. So we started to place them on the couch he was sitting on, on the floor, even balancing them on the armrest. Pretty soon, he's surrounded by all the news reports, connecting him and Rosie to Tony's murder. It looks like he's floating in an ocean of sepia-toned papers, about to drown. The police in the newspaper put stuff out. And back then, everybody believed what the newspaper and the police said that they told you somebody did something. I mean, the whole church, everybody believed that we did this before we even had a chance. So, I mean, that's just the way life was back then. For Calvin, this was really hurtful. People started to look at him differently. People would avoid you. When you went in to get something done, they would ask questions about, you know, just make reference to all the time, not to how I'm doing, but what's going on with my case, stuff like that. And people, you, like, help before. They would come back and say, oh, we always knew him. He was no good. He was a crook. The arrest wrecked his business and his home life. It really affected his kids. Brian Jones is one of Calvin's five sons. He was a kid when his dad's mugshot first showed up in the papers. And Brian described feeling like his family's dirty laundry was out in the street for everyone to see. And I remember it clearly. I'm about maybe nine, ten, but my dad was in the newspaper every day. It would be the equivalent of having bad press on Facebook all day, day in and day out. They were in the newspaper, on the news, every day for, I don't know, over a year. I asked the now editor-in-chief of the Stockton Record about what Calvin and Rosie said, that they felt the paper was slanderous and unfair in its coverage, that it was irresponsible to connect Calvin and Rosie to a murder with no corroborating evidence. He wasn't able to talk to the specifics of the case, but he gave me this statement. The social environment of the early 70s was much different than that of today. For example, there were few African-American editors leading newsrooms as I do in Stockton. We recognize that crime and public safety coverage sometimes lacks context as well as relevance and often heavily relies on police narratives to the detriment of many communities. He went on to say... The paper has made changes to have more equitable coverage, like no longer using mugshots. But it's fair to wonder, did the papers make them guilty in the eyes of the public before they had their day in court? 
A month after the murder, the police have hit a dead end, and no one is happy. Tony's family feels ignored. My dad and Calvin feel wrongfully accused. The investigators have Tony's dying declaration, but not enough evidence to actually make an arrest. So there's really no case. And this is where the story could end. But then, a surprising ally enters the scene. Hey, Whitlow, thanks for calling me back. No problem, Lieutenant Hudson. Uh, so I was told you have some important information for me regarding the Virgilio death. Whitlow is a private investigator sent by New York Life Insurance to conduct an investigation into Tony's murder. Lieutenant Nunson is a Stockton police officer, and this scene is reconstructed from documents we obtained in our investigation. Well, I really wanted to know what you know about the case. See, I know that you're working for the insurance company and they have an interest in this, so I want to know if they're going to pay out quick or are they looking to drag their feet? <laughs> Listen... I'm an investigator. I don't make those type of calls. But what I can tell you, strictly off the record, is that I'm sure that the company wouldn't want to pay this claim if it was determined that Jones and Estrada were involved in the Virgilio death. So, I got another question for you. Does New York Life have any cash funds available? It could certainly help our investigation. You see, we got some leads to check out, but we've got, hmm, how do you say this? Uh, Limited funds. Oh? Yeah, we got two people in Oakland and two in San Francisco who might be willing to talk if they got a little bread. If we check the leads out, that we might be able to scare up an indictment, you know? Well, um, how much would you need? How does 1,000 sound? To put things into perspective, $1,000 in 1974 would be closer to $6,000 today. So, should this check be made out to the Stockton Police Department, or...? No, no, this would have to be an off-the-cuff cash payment. For the snitches. Well, I, I don't really know much about giving money to police investigations, but... I'll tell you what. I'll be in touch with the Home Office. I'll give you an answer when I see you on Monday. How's that sound? Essentially, the police were soliciting funds from New York Life while conducting an active investigation. And why did New York Life care? Because if Calvin and Rosie were found responsible for the murder of Tony, the insurance company would be off the hook. The insurance company doesn't pay out claims if the beneficiaries, the people who are supposed to get the money, are the ones who killed the insured. We don't know if New York Life ever paid out the money for the snitches, but to me, it feels like collusion. So I called up some experts who work in these types of investigations, and they said that for a small department like Stockton, back in the 70s, this probably happened all the time. But what should never have happened is the police revealing details of an ongoing investigation to the media, and especially not to a private insurance company that had an interest in the outcome of the investigation. I ran this by Officer Silva, who represents the SPD today. He says he can't really answer to the allegations from that time period, but neither of those things would be okay today. I do not know what was the common practice in the early 1970s, but today we do not solicit funds from private companies to aid in a homicide investigation. Today we do not release information regarding an active investigation to an outside third party. 
Today, the newspaper and the police department admit that they would do things a lot different. And it makes me think that maybe Dad and Calvin were right. The odds were stacked against them from the very start. But none of that clears my dad. At least not in my mind. I need evidence that clearly shows he had nothing or something to do with it. And so far, the police have neither. You'd think this would be the end of the story. There's no evidence, no arrests. Years have passed, and no one has any more information on who killed Tony. But one person kept pushing this case. One person who would stop at nothing to bring charges against Calvin and Rosie. That's after the break. The cast of characters in this case feels like something from a sitcom. And of course, just like any good sitcom, Friends or How I Met Your Mother, the cast of characters in this story had their meeting place. For Stockton's power players in the 70s, it was a rather nondescript bar in the center of town. There was a little corner bar that everybody would go to after court. It was called the Eden Lodge. Stockton resident Randy Bell was a friend of my father's and a longtime political operative in the 70s and 80s. Back in the day, the Eden Lodge sat right on El Dorado, a main thoroughfare that cut across downtown. It was the meeting place for everybody from the courts. You walk into the lobby and there's a motel, right? And then you go through the lobby and you walk into the bar. And the bar is straight ahead. And everybody had their own little table. The Lodge, like a lot of people and places in this story, is gone now. It exists only in the memories of folks like Randy. And other attorneys would meet in this one corner table. And you knew you could go in there 5, 5.30, and if you needed to talk to somebody, that was a table to go to. At that corner table, a young DA would often sit, 33-year-old Patricia Kaiser. Quick note, she goes through a couple of marriages and last names, but the name Patricia is all you need to remember. She was an ambitious woman. She joined the San Joaquin County DA's office straight out of law school and was hired as the county's first female prosecutor. On the night of Tony's murder, Patricia was at a party with her colleague Alvin Norris. They'd been seeing each other socially. Remember, it's New Year's Eve, she's out celebrating, but her night gets cut short by a call. There's been a murder. She needs to go down to the police station, so Patricia brings Alvin along. Looking back, this is where things go downhill for Calvin and Rosie before they even know it. Not only was Patricia there the night of the murder, she was assigned to the case. She was working arm in arm with Sergeant Ross to gather evidence against Calvin and Rosie. And when the police investigation stalled, it was Patricia who was left empty-handed, unable to get an indictment. But she refused to give up. Even years later, after she left the DA's office, Patricia was deeply entrenched in the case. But this time, in a new way. Pat Ferguson was more than doing it as a job. I mean, she was truly emotionally involved in this case. Why? Why do you think she I was? Think, I think she was close to the widow. 
Actually, she handled some estate stuff for the widow during this whole thing that was going on. I checked into Randy's claims, and she's right. When Patricia wasn't able to get a conviction in criminal court, she took Calvin and Rosie to civil court. Her client? Carolyn Virgilio, Tony's widow. Stockton Record, July 22nd, 1975. Slain Virgilio's partners named in $2 million suit. The two partners of contractor Anthony C. Virgilio, murdered on New Year's Eve, 1973, were named Monday in a civil suit in Superior Court. Patricia Norris, attorney for Virgilio's widow and children in the civil action for wrongful death, explained that the burden of proof in civil cases is considerably less than in criminal actions. Carolyn was suing Calvin and Rosie for $2 million. That would be $11 million today. And Patricia would have seen a nice chunk of that cash. The problem with the civil suit was there was no evidence. Nothing that proved they were at fault and owed Carolyn damages for the death of her husband. Patricia worked on the civil suit for years, but it went nowhere. So, to recap, Patricia tried the case against Calvin and Rosie on the criminal side and failed. Then she went to the civil side and failed again. So, months later, she goes back to the criminal side and this time is determined to get her arrest. And by the way, here's a strange fact. While all of this is going on, a sale goes through for the Virgilio home. Who bought it? Patricia Kaiser's husband, Alvin Norris. You might remember him as the assistant district attorney working the case. Patricia's former colleague is now her husband. So the same two people who took statements on the night of the murder are now living in the victim's house. So not only is she friends with Tony's widow, she then moves into the house. She was literally living and breathing Virgilio air. I wouldn't be shocked if she had a Ouija board to communicate with Tony each night about this case. Except that I'm a grown man and I don't believe in ghosts. (laughs) Right, I know this sounds crazy, but I want to point out another angle. Like for some people listening to this, Patricia's story might sound like a hero story. A tough female DA with a white whale case finally gets what she's after. But I want to make one thing very clear. Regardless of how you feel about it today, all of this would legally be a conflict of interest. I started this investigation believing my dad was guilty. Basically, wanting him to be guilty. I wanted to feel justified in my conviction that he was a bad man. So I was looking for evidence to tell me it's okay to think my dad was a murderer. But all I found up to this point is a co-conspirator best friend who says they're innocent. A dead man's final words, suspects that weren't investigated, and a prosecutor who crossed the line. What I don't have is evidence. So now I'm confused. 
months into this, and I'm still not sure what was actually used to arrest my dad and Calvin for Tony's murder. And then one day, I find it. What was the smoking gun that Patricia needed to finally arrest Calvin and Rosie? That's next time on The Estate. The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tenderfoot TV. Hosted by me, Alex Estrada and Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier-Salazar, Alex Estrada, and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier-Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Moda and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollock, Sarah Boannon, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger 